Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University and I'm delighted to bring you this podcast. Our guest today is Professor Stephen Terrett from the Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. Professor Terrett is Associate Dean at the Hopkins School of Public Health, is also a professor of health policy and management. His expertise is on the application of the law to public health, and as you might expect, his training is in both law and public health. He's been a hero in the area of gun control and violence and injury prevention overall, uh, with particular expertise on issues such as automobile safety and airbags in cars. Um, he's fought the fights, has been a very active figure for a number of years in this field, and I said, and as I said, has been a real hero and has been one of the people with a background in the law that's pushed the forefront of this, this area. So, Steve, I'm delighted to have you here. Well, thank you very much, Kelly. And we'd like to talk today about your experience in public health and law and then uh, talk about how some of the lessons that have been learned in other areas apply to the diet, nutrition, and obesity area. And I'm very happy that you're paying attention to those areas as well as to the other things that you've studied over the years. So let's start with a fundamental question. Why is the law important in, in considering public health? You know, when I first started to work in public health after having been a trial lawyer for uh, almost 10 years, I thought that I was going to give up my past as a lawyer and devote myself to public health. But after I had been in public health and learned about it, it dawned on me that law actually is one of the most potent tools for protecting the health of populations. That's whether you're using legislation, whether you're using the regulatory process, or whether you're using courtrooms for litigation. There's so many examples of how law has probably, in my biased opinion, been even more of a potent tool than medicine in protecting the well-beings of populations. If you look at the examples that the Federal Centers for Disease Control gives about the most noteworthy accomplishments of public health in the 20th century, many of those are intimately related to law, which just one example would be uh, vaccine programs that reduce the incidence of infectious disease among children. The reason that those programs are effective is because states pass laws saying that children need to be vaccinated before they enroll in schools. So again, law just has the ability to change the behavior not only of individuals but of corporations uh, that make products uh, that change the environment for us. And uh, by pursuing public health and the law, I think we're able to uh, really make great strides in protecting the public's health. Uh, you were kind enough to lecture in an undergraduate class that I teach here at Yale just a few moments ago. And in that class, you showed a slide depicting um, intervention at various stages of a problem. So you used the example of gun control and then the example of nutrition, but that one, one can intervene in different places along the continuum of activities and behavior. Um, and you mentioned the wisdom of intervening early. I'd like you to lay out that conceptual scheme, if you wouldn't mind, 
uh, because, and then we'll try to link it back to legal intervention, which I think is really interesting. So you talked about the sale of guns, the manufacture of guns, et cetera. Yes, if you think of a gun as having a fictional lifespan with there being certain markers in that lifespan, those markers could include the, the beginning of the life of the gun being the manufacturer or the birth of the gun and the design of the gun. Then another marker in the lifespan of the gun would be the, the sale or the purchase of the gun, another marker would be the carrying or possession of the gun, and then a final marker could be the use of the gun, pulling the trigger. If you think where we as a society in the United States have invested most of our policy efforts, it's toward the end of the lifespan of the gun. We say very clearly that you can't pull the trigger of the gun except in very certain prescribed circumstances, prescribed circumstances. Uh, but putting the bulk of our policy efforts toward the end of the lifespan of the gun probably makes the least amount of sense. We, we shouldn't be putting millions of guns into the hands of individuals and then asking them to always act kindly and prudently with a gun that's in their hand, especially when they're filled with alcohol, they're filled with rage. We shouldn't rely only on telling people when they can possess or carry a gun. If we move all the way back to the beginning of the lifespan of the gun, the manufacture of the gun, the design of the gun, then we can make decisions about how many guns do we want entering the stream of commerce in the United States and how do we want those guns to be designed. And by doing that, we probably do the most to reduce the incidence of gun violence in the United States rather than relying upon putting those guns out there and then trying to control their use. You know, the, so much depends, doesn't it, on <clears throat> how these issues are framed and conceptualized by the public. And I know in the area of nutrition, there are real struggles to see who will control the frame and who will be the most persuasive in that framing issue. And I was reminded in the gun arena by that, the concept that you hear a lot, that guns don't kill people, that people kill people. And and I know there are different ways of saying that, but the, the basic concept is there. And, it, it, and it, to me, that, that that's fine as a philosophy, but you have to ask, what road does it lead down? And that means that you focus on the people rather than the guns, and you're focused late in the process, like you said, rather than earlier in the process. And in the nutrition area, the very same thing applies, that the, the food industry and its political allies are likely to say there's nothing wrong with food itself. People can always eat in moderation. It's people are making bad choices, and then they inter want to intervene late in the, the, the game, convincing people to eat better, education of children around nutrition and things like that. And uh, thus far, that's proven to be a pretty f futile approach and has wasted resources or hasn't been much impact from it. And it sounds like the parallels with the whole gun and violence prevention thing are really quite startling. Well, I think that there are strong parallels going back to the aphorism that you said about guns don't pe kill people. It's people who kill people. In reality, it's people with guns who kill people. And if you're trying to figure out which would it be easier to control, the behavior of 300 million people in the United States or the availability and the design of guns in the United States. It ought to be the availability and design of guns. A, a gun that's made is likely to be a gun that's used. Well, the same thing probably could be said 
for uh, a bag of potato chips. A bag of potato chips that's made is a bag of potato chips that's going to be eaten. And if you want people not to be eating uh, calorie-dense foods to an excess, then we shouldn't be making a lot of calorie-dense foods and relying on people to be smart enough that they're going to somehow avoid or resist the temptation to eat the, the bag of potato chips or whatever other food we're talking about. Instead, we should look at how the food is designed, whether the, the food is uh, obesogenic or calorie dense, and whether there are ways to make the food uh, more natural, not including uh, things like high fructose corn syrup or other agents that are going to make the food calorie dense and, and changing uh, the kinds of foods that we make available to people. For instance, if you look in the inner cities in the United States, it's a well-documented fact that a lot of the foods that are available to people are foods that aren't uh, healthy or, or nutritious foods. We, we shouldn't be saying to the people who live in those geographic areas, don't eat the, those foods. We should be changing the foods that are available to people. And that's something that seems to me is achievable through prudent use of policy. I agree. And certainly in the nutrition area, that applies as well. Let's go back to the, the vaccination as an example of this. If you think about um, the, the control of a lot of infectious diseases among children being attributable to the vaccinations, if they were, if government authorities were to apply the model that they apply with guns and nutrition, that is, you just focus on the end user and try to educate them or implore them to behave better, but didn't require the behavior to occur, you could imagine what chaos there would be in the public health world if you had to rely on an education program saying, please get your child vaccinated without requiring it. You could never accomplish the overall goal that now has been accomplished. Uh, even if you were able to come close, it would cost so much money, or you can just create a law that requires it. And it's it's interesting why that same philosophy hasn't yet been applied to areas like guns or to, to nutrition. What do you think might be some of the reasons for that? Well, sometimes it takes a while for uh, a new idea to, um, to take root and for the, the dissemination of that idea, but the history of public health is the history of uh, types of interventions that you've just stated. Many, many decades ago when we dealt with mosquito-borne diseases as a peculiar and difficult public health problem, we didn't ask people to try to avoid mosquitoes. We tried to control the mosquitoes. We shouldn't be asking people to always try to avoid certain foods. We should look at how we're offering foods and constructing foods for people. Uh, what's difficult about doing that is we in the United States have a very, very strong reliance on uh, personal freedoms, and, and we love our personal freedoms, but the history of public health is also a history of trying to figure out the correct balance between personal freedoms and initiatives that will protect the population. There are such balances. The balance was struck, as you say, with childhood mandatory immunization laws. The balance still needs to be struck with regard to food. I'm not suggesting that the government should tell us what we're 
allowed to eat and when we can eat it and how much of the food we can eat. But uh, the government, whether we're talking about federal, state, or local government, the government can help us help ourselves by telling the industry uh, what the options are with regard to food production, food marketing, and, and we haven't gone far enough yet in that direction. When one talks about the law, application of the law to the public health, you think of three possible places to intervene, legislation, regulation, and litigation. Most people will understand the, the concept of the legislation with introducing laws that would control some part of the system. Um, regulation, I think most people understand is, uh, pretty clearly as well. The regulatory agencies like the FDA and the Department of Agriculture, et cetera, get involved in a number of decisions that affect our lives. But I think people will be less familiar with how litigation might be an important tool in the pursuit of public health. Could you give us some background on that? Sure, I'd be happy to, but uh, first we should remember that these are not mutually exclusive policy tools, so it's not that you have to pick one of the three, legislation, regulation, or litigation. We can be moving forward on uh, two or all three of those at the same time. With regard to litigation, um, sometimes it's easier to get things done through the courts than it is to get things done by Congress or the regulatory bodies. Obviously, with Congress or with the federal regulatory agencies, you're dealing with politics, uh, and you're dealing with contributions from people with vested interests that uh, may change the viewpoint of politicians. Um, in the courts, you're not dealing with that. In the courts, you're dealing with a 12-person jury, and the goal of that jury is not to get reelected. The goal of that jury is to go home, to be done with the case. And what you need to do is convince a jury that if a manufacturer, for example, is creating a product that's harmful to the public, and the manufacturer knows that, and there are things that can be done to reduce the harm, and the manufacturer fails to do that, then the manufacturer ultimately should be held liable for the damage that the manufacturer causes. This is a, a standard formula for negligence or tort kinds of cases. It's a formula that's worked. Decades ago, we tried very hard to get airbags in cars because we knew that they would save thousands of lives each year. And uh, we tried through the legislative process, but it was difficult to accomplish that uh, with Congress. We tried through the regulatory process, and again, uh, the regulatory agency, in this case the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, would keep reversing itself uh, from requiring airbags to be put in cars to rescinding that requirement when the uh, political climate would change in Washington. So what we did, in addition to pursuing legislation and regulation, is we suggested to plaintiff trial lawyers that when clients come into their offices who have been injured in frontal collisions of cars, injured by being quadriplegic, paraplegic, by having brain damage, by having facially disfiguring scarring, that in addition to suing the driver of the other car, the lawyers could sue the car manufacturer for failing to put an airbag in the car when the car manufacturers themselves had proven the effectiveness and the technological feasibility of airbags. 
the first case that came to court was a case brought in Birmingham, Alabama, where an 18-year-old woman was involved in a frontal collision and was horribly injured, became a spastic brain damage quadriplegic. Ten days into the trial, Ford Motor Company settled that case by the payment of $1.8 million. When that happened, uh, there, was, there were other cases that were brought until eventually there was, in essence, a tidal wave of litigation, so much so that in 1985, Ford Motor Company, in its reports to the Securities and Exchange Commission, said that it had pending against it for that year, 1985, in airbag litigation claims the amount of $1.1 billion. That also was the year that Ford Motor Company decided to offer airbags as options. So we, we uh, abstract from that that litigation can be a very, very effective tool in changing the conduct of manufacturers, product manufacturers, in making them want to invest in prevention rather than paying the penalty for neglect. Has litigation, well, I know the answer to this, of course, but is, tell us how litigation has been used thus far in the uh, arena of food, nutrition, and obesity, and then we can talk about how it might be more constructively used in the future. The early cases of the use of litigation in nutrition and obesity were brought against uh, companies that owned fast food establishments, and essentially the lawsuits uh, said, uh, you're making food, hamburgers, cheeseburgers, uh, chicken dishes that uh, were had too many calories in it. The, product, the uh, portions were uh, large enough so that my child or myself, who eats regularly at these fast food establishments, got fat and uh, therefore you're to blame. Those cases in general didn't go well in the courts, uh, although there was uh, some controversy uh, with regard to the cases and they all didn't have the same outcomes. But I think it's fair to generalize to say that they didn't go well. And one of the things that uh, resulted from those cases uh, is what's called cheeseburger laws in the vernacular, which is different states passed laws saying that you can't sue a fast food establishment for, for getting you fat. But those were cases that perhaps were brought too early without careful enough thought of the legal theory behind them, and it's not surprising that those early cases lost. The, the world of litigation is um, perhaps unusual, though, in the sense of it, it's based on precedent, so that the fact that some cases lost makes it harder to have a winning case in the future of the very same type. But all you need ultimately is one winning case to change the precedent, and then all subsequent cases become easier. And there are cases that could be thought of that deal with uh, theories or causes of action other than those early cases that might be more successful than the early cases. Do you think there are other um, ways the law might, litigation, might be used in the future in dealing with diet, nutrition, and obesity? One area that might prove fertile for the law has to deal with the question of whether 
food makers modify their product so as to make the, the food have addictive properties. Uh, so let's just posit a, an hypothesis here that a food maker will do something chemically, structurally, structurally to the food that uh, makes people want to eat more and more of the food to the detriment of the health of those people. It would be akin to cigarette manufacturers increasing the nicotine in cigarettes to make the cigarettes addictive when a, a quote, natural, unquote, cigarette wouldn't have that amount of nicotine. If it proves that that is the case, that food manufacturers are doing that, then potentially one could bring a lawsuit saying, it was your conduct in changing your product to make it addictive that caused the ill health of people, and therefore you should be liable for that conduct. Now, we, we don't yet have all of the science in place uh, so that those kinds of lawsuits, I think, are still conceptually premature, but it may turn out that those kinds of lawsuits become the most important lawsuits in the area of nutrition and obesity prevention. So let me insert a quick comment for the people listening. Um, there, another Rudd Center podcast um, that we recorded um, had as, as our guest Dr. Mark Gold from the University of Florida, who is a leading addiction researcher, and he discussed the science on the issue of food and addiction. And if you'd like to uh, be able to see that, you can go to our website or listen to it, www.yaleruddcenter.org. And on the left-hand side of the homepage, you'll see a podcast button, and then you can search through the list of podcasts and find the one by Dr. Mark Gold. Let's talk about the addiction concept just a little bit. Every manufacturer manipulates its products to make them more desirable. They change the color, they make the cars go faster, they, whatever they do, that's what they're in business to do. And so the, the question is, if the food industry is manipulating things like sugar and fat and salt in ways that just make people like them more, they, foods taste better, and why wouldn't the industry do that? At what point does that become something that might be actionable through litigation? The big issue is whether that causes damage. So you, you say that product makers always manipulate the products. That's true, and that should not and does not always result in litigation. So let's say that a car manufacturer decides that this year uh, people like a particular shade of yellow and it makes more yellow cars, and it does well by doing that. It sells more cars. There's nothing wrong with that and more power to the car manufacturer. If, on the other hand, uh, a food manufacturer manipulates a product by making uh, it have more sugar, by having the product be more calorie-dense and causes people to uh, consume more of that product and perhaps even become addicted to that product with the food manufacturer knowing that there's going to be health consequences to the consumer, then that's the damage, and specifically the foreseeable damage, that would make a food manufacturer, in theory, liable. So let's, let's so the basis here would be that the, um, the industry is manipulating the content or constituents of its products in ways that lead to unhealthy behavior. Isn't the counterclaim that um, people don't have to behave in irresponsible ways with them? So a movie company 
brings in the latest stars and uses engaging special effects to make people really like their movies. And if some people respond to that by watching the same movie over and over again or watching the sequels to the movie over and over again to the point where it's interfering with their social life or something, then then you could claim that most people manage to behave responsibly in the presence of this product, but some people don't, and you can't blame the product for that. Does that kind of a parallel make sense with food? I mean, certainly, even if, if food might trigger some sort of an addictive trust, and not everybody falls victim to it, there are plenty of people who eat responsibly. I think I have two responses to that question. The first is in the hypothetical of a movie company bringing in the attractive stars so that someone watches the movie over and over again with the consequences of it interfering with one's social life. I think that that is qualitatively different than someone becoming ill uh, from the the overuse of uh, a product. The, the second response is, yes, people do have the ability to make choices and people ought to, at least in large part, be responsible for their choices. But if their behavior is so much manipulated to uh, their detriment, again, using an example of uh, putting nicotine uh, as an addictive agent in cigarettes with the people not fully understanding what's happening, so the people aren't able to make informed choices about how much of the product they're using, and with that um, ill-informed choice resulting in illness, uh, then yes, that's something that can possibly result in liability. One of the ways that that would be determined, not the sole way, would be what does a jury think of this? And again, that's one of the attractions for some of using litigation as a tool to protect the public's health. It's a jury of your peers who decide whether you've been treated unfairly or not, whether you've been damaged, and whether there's a causal relationship of that damage to the breach of a duty that a manufacturer had to you, the duty to act reasonably. Ultimately, appellate courts also will decide. Sometimes legislatures get involved. But what we need to do is think of all of the ways that we can make changes in the food products that are available to us that will together adequately address the epidemic of obesity. So maybe one way to conceptualize this is that there are sort of normal conditions under which most people can be expected to behave responsibly. But if the conditions change in ways that undermine that and greatly decrease the number of people who can behave responsibly, then there might be the basis for intervention through legislation or litigation, et cetera. And just to finish the thought, the, the people who, who study drugs um, have this very powerful metaphor that they use where they talk about drugs hijacking the brain. And the idea there, of course, is pretty evident that uh, the drugs get in, undermine discipline, restraint, willpower, responsibility, um, because of the chemical process of the drugs. And really, all bets are off at that point because people just, well, not people can't behave responsibly under those conditions that you really have problems. So if you connect all these dots, 
it seems like if you can make the case that food is getting into the brain and, and decreasing the number of people who are capable of behaving responsibly in the presence of it, and industry is, is manipulating those ingredients, not necessarily consciously trying to addict people, but just trying to get people to eat as much of the food as they can, there might be the basis for taking action. Does that all make sense? Yes, I think it makes a great deal of sense. We do want people to act responsibly, but we should also keep in mind that not everyone has an equal capacity to act responsibly. So there are some categories of people, children being the one that most clearly comes to mind, who uh, will not be able to act responsibly compared to uh, a, a highly prudent adult. And those categories of people, children in this case and other categories, they should not be put at risk because they're unable to act responsibly. So for instance, if a, a new company makes a product that they call a food product that's essentially just sugar, and they advertise that to uh, children, and particularly if they falsely advertise that, saying this is healthy, this is going to make you popular, this is going to make you a, a good person in some respect, certainly the law will uh, intervene with that because a vulnerable population is being put at, at great risk by a corporation that's seeking to enhance its profits. Well, you can step back a little bit from that. Think of other vulnerable populations. Think of things that fall short of selling uh, pure sugar with the promise that it's going to make you a, a good person, but have uh, lesser promises about the healthiness of food or even failure to warn about the unhealthiness of food that can result in liability. This is a field that, uh, with regard to food litigation, that is not even in its infancy yet, it's in its embryonic stage. And all this will have to be uh, defined through, uh, through trials, not necessarily errors, uh, to see uh, where should the line be drawn. But I believe that the, there is a line that should be drawn, and the line should be drawn at a place that's a little bit distant from the current behavior of some food manufacturers. Boy, is it going to be interesting to watch the history of this being written and whether litigation can have the powerful effect in this arena like it has in others. Uh, let's change topics, if you wouldn't mind. <clears throat> There's a legal concept that I think isn't very familiar to people in the general public about uh, preemption. And I know you've, uh, you're an expert on this issue of preemption, and uh, this is an issue of great relevance to some things going on out there with diet, nutrition, and obesity issues at the moment. Could you explain the concept, uh, what it means, and how it may apply to public health issues? Yes, preemption is a complicated topic. It's a topic that uh, lawyers uh, like to uh, study, and they like to write about and courts like to create decisions about it and there's a, a very uh, broad body of law that's been created by judicial decisions, by legislation and by interpretation uh, of those decisions and legislation but to reduce it to its most simple, its simplest form, preemption means that uh, a higher level of government may stop a lower level of government 
from enacting laws in a particular area. So for example, if the federal government decides that it, through Congress, wants to entirely occupy a, a field of concern and that the states, therefore, should not pass legislation or localities should not pass legislation, then under certain circumstances the federal government can do that or states can prevent or preempt localities from passing uh, legislation. Are there uh, obvious examples where preemption is something you'd want? For example, the federal government can controls what kind of currency gets used in the country and states can't then print their own currencies, I'm assuming. Um, but there are places where preemption turns out to be counterproductive. How is this being played out now in the nutrition arena? Sometimes preemption can be antithetical to public health. Uh, some people argue for preemption because they say they don't want a, uh, a, a patch quilt kind of arrangement of laws as one moves from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But in public health, it turns out that sometimes problems exist in one jurisdiction but don't exist in another. So for instance, you may have a problem with uh, the need for rat eradication in an urban area that you wouldn't have in a rural area. You may have a higher incidence of gun violence in an urban area than you would have in a rural area. So what public health likes to do is something that's called essentially home rule, which is allow the locality to come up with the best interventions for its own problems and don't impose those interventions on other areas within the same state, for example, that don't have the same kinds of problems. With regard to nutrition and obesity, the way that prevention uh, seems to be working is uh, we could take the uh, attempt to try to regulate foods that are available to children in schools as a, a good example. Uh, the federal government may say that it wants to regulate this so it's uniform across all of the uh, 50 states so that children have some basic protection in the school environment as to the foods to which they're exposed. But some states may have the political will and the ability to go further than the federal government does. The federal government, because you're dealing with, with Congress and members uh, from every state, sometimes comes up with the lowest common denominator. And some states, again, may be able to come up with more protective legislation. Or it may even be that localities, a city within a state, has the ability to come up with more protective uh, legislation or regulation. It may be that uh, a city uh, has or, or a town has a certain subgroup of population that's particularly vulnerable to obesity and they want to regulate more stringently to protect that highly vulnerable population. So the argument that takes place is whether we should allow the federal government to preempt the states, whether we should allow the states to preempt the localities. There are arguments for that on both sides, 
but frequently public health people will try to adhere to the greatest extent possible to the concept of home rule, which is the local government is best able to decide what it needs to do to protect its own population. Steve, this issue of, of schools and nutrition and preemption has been played out very recently, in fact, as you know. Um, the uh, Several states, including Connecticut and California and then several other places, have very strong uh, school nutrition legislation. Uh, Senator Harkin from Iowa introduced into the last farm bill, it didn't make it, but it's likely to reemerge as an issue, school nutrition legislation that would cover the whole country and preempt states from doing anything on their own. There was great division in the public health nutrition community around this, where some people were, were furious that it would prevent what they saw as a spreading trend, the states having good school nutrition legislation, by coming to a lower common denominator, whereas others said, we don't know how whether that trend will continue, we don't know how many states will ultimately take a, take a part in this, and in fact, to get something that, albeit might be a weaker standard, but at least apply to the whole country, would have a very beneficial public health impact. And uh, it was to the point where nutrition advocacy groups that generally agree with one another were at, at odds on this kind of issue. I imagine that happens a lot in, in public health when this issue comes up. This does happen, and actually there's a compromise that can be struck that I think is a win-win situation, which is that the federal government can legislate or regulate and state that what it's doing represents a floor, but that states or localities, should they choose, can have more stringent regulations. Uh, this exists in uh, a number of different areas. If I recall correctly, the Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, or the legislation that authorizes the, the Consumer Product Safety Commission says that CPSC is allowed to regulate the safety of products, but states could go further in regulating the safety of products. In the area of environmental health sciences, uh, we know that the federal government has certain regulations regarding emissions from cars, but California is one state that's been allowed to have more stringent regulations, again, because California, perhaps uh, since it has uh, a higher number of cars, may, needed a, may need a different kind of regulation than the rest of the states, and that makes sense. There's one other thing that we should remember from uh, other areas of public health with regard to preemption, which is that sometimes uh, a bad actor or bad in terms of protecting the public's health is uh, an organization that favors preemption because it allows that organization to fight fights on a limited number of venues rather than thousands of venues. An example is in the mid-1980s, the National Rifle Association made as its number one policy initiative for that period uh, gaining preemption laws in each of the 50 states so that localities would not be allowed to create their own laws about the possession, the carrying, and the use of guns. The NRA was successful in more than 40 states in doing that. So in my state, for example, and in the area in which I live and work, Baltimore City, which has a gun problem that is much different from rural Maryland, is legally unable to regulate the possession, the carrying, the use 
of guns uh, because it's been preempted from doing so by the state legislature. That was a victory of the National Rifle Association that allowed them to work on 50 fronts rather than on thousands of fronts, but it's not a victory for the public's health. It's a, it's a clear detriment that we can't regulate gun policy at the local level. Speaking of California, this happened recently with menu labeling legislation where San Francisco and San Mateo had um, quite strict menu labeling legislation that they were uh, considering or about to enact. And the um, restaurant association came in and worked with various people in California to pass a weaker state law, not necessarily a bad one, but a somewhat weaker state law that preempts the local areas from doing their own uh, interventions and, and legislation. And the argument by the food industry is that we have to have one standard, that we can't have you know one label in one town and then we cross the border into the next town and we have another fast food restaurant and we have to do a whole different thing with, with menu labeling. And I guess that's a defensible argument in, in one respect, but also it really does narrow the ability of smaller units of government to respond to the local needs, as you said. I actually don't find that argument to be that compelling or convincing. I I don't understand why, if one locality differs from another locality on the issue of how to inform the customers of a fast food establishment about the caloric content of certain foods, I don't understand why that should be seen as an unfair burden on that individual restaurant. But again, I think that there's a solution to this, which is have federal laws or state laws representing uh, a minimum requirement of protection. And then if states or municipalities want to go further, allow them to do so if that's politically feasible within their jurisdiction. Well, thank you, Steve. The I, I can just see that <clears throat> the future is going to bring a lot more attention to the application of the law to issues of diet and nutrition and obesity. And if the histories that have been written in some of the other areas, that is very productive application of the law applies here, then I think we may all well be better off for it. So thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Kelly. It was my pleasure. So our guest today was Professor Stephen Terrett, a professor of health policy and management, associate dean and director of the Center for Law and the Public's Health at Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. I welcome you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of a variety of resources, including a free email newsletter that comes out monthly, a blog to take part in for those interested, a variety of resources around diet and nutrition issue, and of course, a list of the the, uh, excellent podcasts that we've recorded over the past several years. Thank you.